Good morning. Thanks for joining us on this rainy Sunday morning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 24 this morning as we continue our series through the Olivet Discourse. And before we uh, open up God's Word together, let's uh, bow in a word of prayer. Father, what a privilege it is to gather in your house with your people this morning, uh, to open up your word, to sing together, uh, to offer uh, our lives as a sacrifice uh, to be used for your honor, for your glory, for the advance of your kingdom. And we're excited uh, to hear from you, to open up your word. We ask that you might speak to each of us, to convict us, to empower us, to live according to the way that you want us to live, to be the people that you desire us to be. So we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the sixth sermon in the Be Ready series. I had to laugh. I wrote seven of the eight sermons. I didn't know until this morning it was the Be Ready series. (laughs) So you learn a few things. In the 1880s, life was good in Jonestown, excuse me, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. If you've been to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, I have. It's a beautiful place. It's where a lot of immigrants from Wales and Germany settled. They settled there because industry was good. There was a foundry there. The Pennsylvania Railroad and Canal ran through there. Lots of jobs. The forests were beautiful. The rivers, spectacular. In fact, it looks a lot like central Wisconsin. They had a little problem though. They wanted a river to be dammed up. And in fact, two rivers were dammed up, up above the city of Johnstown. And they formed the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. It was spectacular, but nobody was totally sure the dam was safe. Now understand that even some magnets came. We have individuals like Andrew Carnegie and Andrew Mellon, they come each year to come onto this beautiful lake. The year was 1889. It was May 30th. The town was celebrating. It was parades and picnics. There were banners out. It was soggy. It had rained eight inches the night before. The whole town had come out for the parades, even though it was wet. And unknown to them, the dam had broken. It released four billion gallons of water. It took 52 minutes to hit Johnstown. When it hit Johnstown, the wall was 60 feet high. And the water was moving at 40 miles per hour. And 2,200 individuals lost their lives. It was the second greatest cataclysmic natural event in American history. The greatest happened in Galveston in 1900, where a hurricane washed 12,000 U.S. citizens out to sea. You can imagine the utter devastation. You can imagine that when the town got set to rebuild, there were questions that were asked. There was a man named John Fulton. He was an engineer. He stood in front of those who had survived. He stood in front of the government. He said, in my hand is a report. I read this report to you nine years ago. Nine years ago, I told you 
that that dam was going to break. Nine years ago, I told you that there were all sorts of signs that a cataclysmic event was about to happen, and you ignored me. You ignored the signs. You always thought, not today, not this week, not this year, not in my lifetime. There was a man, his name was Victor Heiser. He grew up in Johnstown. He said that as a child, he heard over and over again jokes about the dam breaking. Everyone talked about the dam breaking, but it wasn't going to happen today. It wasn't going to happen this week or this year or in their lifetime. Everyone knew the dam would break. Everyone ignored the warning signs. And that dam broke and a cataclysmic event took place. That's Matthew's concern. That's the concern in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25. He tells us about signs. Signs leading up to the return of Christ. Signs leading up to Revelation 6 to 18. Where God will unleash 21 judgments. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Signs that should cause us to be alert, to be awake. A disregard of scripture. A disregard of God's morality. A disregard of God's ethic. A syncretism of religions. All religions being treated as though they're, they're equal and they all tell truth. These are signs leading up to the return of Christ. Matthew talks about signs. I want to pick up in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 44. Listen to God's word. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, Jesus, but the Father only. Let me make a parenthetical remark. I've been asked probably a dozen times in the last month and a half about this verse. And people want to know, does Jesus really not know when he's returning? The answer to that is that while he was on earth, he veiled some of his divine attributes. He didn't cease to have them. He veiled them so that he could sympathize with us in our weaknesses. One of the attributes he veiled was his omniscience, his all knowledge. Now that he's back in heaven, he accesses all of his divine attributes at all times. So certainly Jesus now knows the day and the hour of his return. But while on earth, he chose not to know that, that he might understand what it's like to live with a lack of pure knowledge like you and like me. Verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so we're in Genesis 6 to 9, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, a name given to Jesus in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. For as in these days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in a field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken 
and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. He would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also, Christ follower, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man, Jesus, is coming at an hour you do not expect. As I think about the return of Christ, the Greek word parousia, in Latin we call it the rapture. Paul calls it the blessed hope. As I think about that event, I think about the second to last verse in Scripture. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That ought to be the Christ heart. That ought to be the heart of all Christians. That ought to be what we think about. We love this world, but we have anticipation of the world to come. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That can only be said, that can only be thought if the following conditions are true in your life and mine. First, we must know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. We must have come to the end of ourselves, recognized that we are sinners in need of a Savior, accepted Jesus' payment of our sin on the death his, or on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, as the payment of our confessed and repented of sin, then we can say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We can say it if we are confessed up, if we keep short accounts with the Lord. We can say it if we're putting on the armor of God, if we have the fruit of the Spirit being developed by God's Spirit within us. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. It's the cry of the faithful Christ follower. Now, as we've looked at the Olivet Discourse, this would be the sixth sermon, and we've only gotten through Matthew 24. As we've looked at the Olivet Discourse, we've noted that we are in Daniel's 70th week, that seven-year period that was unfulfilled in Daniel's life that he wrote about in Daniel chapter 9. It's the same period of time that John writes about in the Apocalypse, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 6 to 18. It's that time period when Satan demonizes a human, the Antichrist, the beast, the man of lawlessness, the little horn, forenamed for the same individual. It's that period of time when God will unleash seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bulls. Now, I've not hidden the fact that I believe that Jesus will remove the church prior to those seven years. That's a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial view of the end times. But it isn't the only orthodox view that Christ's followers hold. Let me show you a few others. Now, this is the view I hold that just prior to the seven years, the Lord will remove or rapture the church. Then we go into the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls. I actually believe all of those start here and go there, but some would hold that they're interspersed across the seven years. 
A second view of the tribulation is a mid-trib position. This holds that when we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 to 4, when the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness sets up an image of himself in a rebuilt temple, Ezekiel 40 to 48, at that point, the Lord will remove his church just prior to the seven seals, trumpets, and bowls. A third view is given to us by Marvin Rosenthal. He first developed it in 1990 and released it in a book called The Pre-Wrath Rapture of the Church. Actually, this would probably be more accurate right about there. It would be three and a half years plus about two months. So he believes that we are here for part of the initial seals, but then God removes his church. Yet another view is post-tribulation that believes that the church is here on earth for all seven years, endures the seals, the trumpets, and bowls with some level of protection. And at this point, we go into the millennial or thousand-year reign of Revelation 20. All the tribulation views believe that after the seven years, Christ comes down and reigns for a thousand bodily years here on earth. Yet another view is amillennialism or inaugurated millennialism. This is a view that was popularized by Augustine in the fourth and fifth centuries AD. It's a view held by some in the Reformation movement, uh, Reformed Church, some Roman Catholics also hold to amillennialism. It is a belief that most of Revelation is to be read figuratively, not literally, and that Jesus right now is reigning in his millennial kingdom. Now all would agree that Jesus is reigning. Uh, all millennialists would say that he is reigning with the believers in heaven and on earth with the believers among us. All of us would agree. They would also argue that Satan is bound now. Some would say with a very long chain or leash. And the next big event for an amillennialist is that Jesus will remove the church and usher in the new heaven and the new earth. You had way too much fun with this laser. I did. I think you missed your calling as a meteorologist. I did. <laughs> I absolutely did. Mike, I'm coming for your job. <laughs> this is what I want you to hear. I just gave you five views, orthodox views, views by God-centered God-honoring Christians who see the time mechanisms in different areas. But all of them, all of them believe that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. All of them believe that we need to put on the armor of God. All of them believe that we need to keep short accounts with the Lord. All of them believe in the inerrancy and the inspiration of scripture. All of them believe that we are called to live for the Lord. All of them would even say that Christ's return is imminent at any moment. Now I happen to think that for the pre-trib and amillennialists, it's a little bit more imminent 
than for the mid-trib, the pre-wrath, and the post-trib. But in fact, all would use the same language that we need to be ready because Jesus is coming. And that's exactly the point of today's passage. Verse 36 says, no one knows the day or the hour. We need to be ready because we don't want to be found doing things that are ungodly. We don't want to be found wasting our lives when Jesus returns. We don't want to be found having idols in our lives, materialism or power or fortune. We want to use God's gifts, but not worship God's gifts. We want to value God's morality. We don't want one foot in the culture and one foot in scripture. We want both feet squarely in God's word. We wanna guard our anger. We wanna guard our character. We wanna minimize slander and gossip. We wanna be ready when Jesus returns. And that's the whole point of the passage. That's the point of verses 37 to 39 where we're given the illustration from Genesis 6 to 9 of Noah. And you remember that Noah was told to build an ark. A careful examination of chronology tells us that Noah built the ark for 80 to 120 years. He did it with his wife, his three sons, his three daughter-in-laws. For 80 to 120 years, he's setting beams and pounding in pegs. But that's not all he did. 2 Peter 2.5 tells us that he was a herald, a preacher of righteousness. In other words, while Noah is building, he's preaching. He's telling the congregations. He's telling the populace, be ready. Be alert. Be right with the Lord. God's judgment is coming. Be ready. And what does the text tell us? The populace did good things. It says that they ate and drank. They married and were given in marriage. Those are good things. To eat and to drink. To give in marriage, to be given in marriage. These are good things. But they did good things to the neglect of the best thing. God has given us many good things to enjoy, but never to the absence of the most necessary thing, to be ready, to be alert when Christ's return. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus comes. That's why the text has two men. One goes, one's ready, one's not. Two ladies, one goes, one's ready, one's not. It tells us to be awake. Jesus is coming like a thief. Paul puts it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4. But you are not in darkness, brethren, for that day to surprise you like a thief. We don't know the day or the hour, but we know he's coming. We see the signs. It may be today, it may be tomorrow, it may be a thousand years from now, but the message is still the same Be ready. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Well, with the three minutes that I've been allotted, uh, why don't we look at... (laughs) I'd shrunk from last service. It wasn't that good the last time around. (laughs) 
<laughs> I've got nothing to say. <laughs> Maybe by next service I'll have something to reply to that. Let's read starting in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and the wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he'll set him over all his possessions. If that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come in a day that he does not expect him and an hour he doesn't know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus tells us a parable, right? An earthly story, a simple story with a heavenly meaning. And he sets up a scenario that's probably familiar to many of us. It's familiar to us on staff at Highland. When the Jedi master, Pastor Jeff, goes away from the office for a week, he'll send an email to our staff, leaving someone in charge. Now, there's a reason that Pastor Jared and his periwinkle blue car are never left in charge. It'd be a weekly staff party. I mean, what else would you expect from the pastor who drives a Ford Fiesta? (laughs) Now, in Pastor Jared's defense, I've never been left in charge either. (laughs) But we understand the picture. The master is going away and, and he leaves his servants in charge. He gives them great responsibility, not just over his household, but over the rest of the servants within the household. He makes sure they're fed. He makes sure that they're doing their job. And there's a, a good servant, a bad servant, a wise servant, and a foolish servant. I think of the wise servant. doesn't matter if the master would come back in two days or two decades. He's going to do exactly what the master asked. He's going to walk with faithfulness. He's going to be a good steward of the resources that the master has given. <laughs> but contrast that with the servant who wasn't so wise, who was foolish, and who said, you know... I don't think my master's coming back anytime soon. And, and look at everything that I have. Look at the money that I have. Look at the power that I have. I'm going to go get drunk on the weekends and I'm going to beat my fellow servants. I'm going to do whatever I want because my master's not coming back anytime soon. I can only imagine the embarrassment, the humiliation of that second servant when the master comes in an hour he doesn't expect and either finds him intoxicated or with a stick in his hand ready to beat up his other servants. Because the master and the account returned at an hour, neither one expected. And they're both rewarded according to their deeds. The the wise servant, he's given more responsibility. But not so with the foolish servant. He's cut into pieces. He's thrown into the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a picture that Jesus paints throughout the Gospels of eternal conscious punishment. What we might call a literal place called hell. It's not a pretty picture. But as we step back, certainly Jesus is making a spiritual parallel in this passage. And Jesus is the master, right? And you and I are his servants. And he expects us to be the wise servant, not the foolish servant until he comes. But I could hear how someone would push back on this text and say, well, doesn't it sound like we might earn or influence our eternal destiny? I mean, if the the good servant gets more responsibility, if the bad servant then gets punishment, doesn't that sound like we're earning our salvation? Well, certainly that's not what Scripture says, and I don't think, I know that's not what Jesus says in this passage. Instead, the wicked servant reveals by his own behavior that he never had a relationship with the master in the first place. For us, if someone claims to know Jesus, if they say, yeah, I have a relationship with Jesus, but they walk in continual wickedness, they're not walking with obedience, that person should look in the mirror and ask, do I really have a relationship with the master? It's what James says. 
Faith without works is dead. Not because works save us, but because works are the evidence of genuine saving faith. The wicked servant revealed that there was no faith in his heart in the first place. But the faithful servant demonstrated the quality, the genuineness of his faith by his obedience. He didn't earn salvation by what he did. Instead, he was demonstrating the evidence of his salvation by his obedience. And the same is true for us, that we need a relationship with the master and our obedience then demonstrates the relationship that we have with Christ. And that's the most important question any of us can ask. Do I know Christ and does he know us? Do we have a relationship with our Savior? Because all of us are born in sin. We're all born enemies of God. All of us have earned, by our own sinful choices, eternity separated from God in a literal place called hell. It's the worst possible news. But God in His grace sent Jesus into the world who lived and died in our place, rising from the dead, that if anyone confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, that you can be saved. It's the best news in the world. And all of us must have come to a place in our life where we say, I believe in Jesus. Have you come to that place? Have you decided to follow Jesus? It's the most important decision that we can make. And for those of us who do know Christ, then waiting for that second coming, it requires patience. Jesus tells us over and over again throughout the Olivet Discourse that he's coming at an hour that no one expects. We don't know when he's going to come back. We need to reject the temptation to try to predict the day, the moment, the hour of his return because it's just impossible. We know he's coming, but his coming might catch us off guard. It might be just a little bit surprising. But as Jesus' servants, empowered by his Holy Spirit, he's left us in charge until he comes. And what does that, what does that look like? Well, I think of Acts 1 verse 8. Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascends to heaven but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. You'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and at the ends of the earth. Think of the parallel passage, the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. What does Jesus expect of us? What does he ask us to do? To make disciples, to tell people about him, to evangelize, to share our faith, so that those around the world that don't know Christ, that would be caught unprepared at his coming, might be ready, might be prepared for his second coming. Now, what does evangelism look like? Well, some might think evangelism is, uh, you know, cold calling people and knocking on doors and sharing the gospel. And certainly that's one way we can share our faith, but that's like evangelism 401. Some of us need evangelism 101. And maybe it starts with who God's placed in our sphere, our coworkers, our family members, our friends that don't know Jesus, that if Jesus returned today, they would not be ready. The most loving thing we can do if we believe the truth of the gospel is to talk about Jesus, is to share the love that Jesus has demonstrated to the world around us that needs Jesus now more than ever. Because we don't know when Jesus is going to return. And for some ways, in some ways at least, that's for our benefit. Maybe we can think of it this way. Maybe you remember back to high school or college, teacher, professor, contrast a a schedule exam with a pop quiz. When that professor or teacher put that scheduled exam on the syllabus, coming uh, maybe four weeks down the road, the unwise student would be tempted to put off studying until the night before the exam. (laughs) Maybe you've been there. But the wise student studies regularly up to the exam, but contrast that with a, a pop quiz. 
or an unscheduled test. Maybe the professor comes into class one day and says, sometime over the next four weeks, I'm going to give you an exam. It's going to cover everything we've learned so far in this course, but I'm not going to tell you what day it's going to be on, but I want you to come to class each day ready to go. The wise student studies multiple times a week getting ready for that exam. The unwise student shows up to class each morning saying, I sure hope it's not today. <laughs> Jesus is our master. He's our master teacher. And he knows when he's coming back, but we don't. And we've got to be living with faithfulness, with obedience day in and day out. Because he could return in a thousand years or he could return today. We don't know, but we have to be ready. There are so many ways to be ready, to have in our hearts this cry, Amen, come Lord Jesus, come. In a word, as Sam says, it's obedience to Christ. But think about that day. Think about when God calls you home, maybe you pass away, or you're here and Jesus returns. Last Saturday, I had the privilege of doing a homegoing service. We call them funerals. I prefer homegoing services. For, for a believer, that's what it is. It's so much better than here. Think about seeing Jesus in all of his glory, all of his splendor. Think about a place not prepared with human hands, but that Jesus himself, the architect and the builder. Think about that time when Jesus removes the church, how does it begin the marriage banquet of the Lamb? Now, I don't know much about this, but in a Jewish culture, certainly in the first century, when a bride and a groom got married, the celebration was a week long. So I'm counting on the marriage banquet of the Lamb being a week-long feast. The chefs are all angels no calories whatsoever. All you can eat buffet. Even the chocolate chip cookies? All you can <laughs> eat buffet. Yes, the chocolate chip cookies. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We need to be ready. But when I think of the text, I want to be careful. I don't want to settle just for good things to the neglect of the best. Again, I go back to the illustration in verses 37 to 39. The people were eating and drinking and giving in marriage and being married all good things. God has given us so many wonderful things, but we need to hold them in balance. I think of work. Work is a good gift. It's bad theology to think that work is the result of the fall. There was work prior to the fall. What happened with the fall is work became tedious, but work is a good thing. But when we abuse it and become a workaholic, we take God's good gift and we abuse it. Family. Family is an amazing thing, but it can become an idol. I don't want to take God's good gifts and elevate them to a point where I neglect the best thing a relationship with the living God, a growing relationship, a vital relationship, one that is ready for his return so that I can say, you can say, we can say with all authenticity, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. 
what does it look like to prepare to be ready for Jesus' return? <laughs> Maybe some think that to be ready, we've got to go sit in the deer stand out in the woods with the telescope looking up at the sky, just waiting for that moment when Jesus comes back on the clouds. Now, that's not what I do in a deer stand. <laughs> that's probably a good thing. <laughs> I don't ever get any deer either, but that's another story. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. What does it look like? Well, Jeff mentioned that one word, obedience. Jesus wants us to do what he's already outlined in his word. That's what it looks like for us to be prepared to be ready for a second coming. Maybe we can ask a, a practical question. How would I feel or how would Jesus feel if he returns in the middle of this activity? How would I feel if Jesus returned while I was binge watching the 10th episode of the day of my favorite show on Netflix? Is that wrong? I'm not going to answer that. Or how would I feel if Jesus returned in the middle of morning quiet time? How would somebody feel if Jesus returned the moment they pulled out their phone to look up something inappropriate on that internet browser? Or how would somebody feel if Jesus returns in the middle of a Sunday morning worship service while we're singing a song like, Jesus, come soon? It'd be amazing. Maybe that can help us determine maybe some priorities, some things in our life. Obedience. It's not flashy. But Jesus doesn't expect us to be flashy. He wants us to be faithful. And when we live lives of faithfulness, that type of obedience, our autobiographies wouldn't climb to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. But Jesus wants us to walk in obedience and to be faithful, to be holy, to be the people that he wants us to be. And when we are, we get this picture in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Little children, now abide in him, remain in him, walk with him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. I think of so many in our Highland family who are ready, who are prepared, who are confident. Think of the grandparents who spend hours a week in prayer for their family and for their church family and for God's work around the world. I think of the parents who are leading their family in devotions and reading scripture together. I think of the young adults who prioritize being involved in something like G180 or One Way Club. I think of the single adults who are using their singleness as leverage for the gospel and the advance of Jesus' kingdom. I think of the high school student who makes it a priority to be in God's word even in the midst of a, a summer vacation. I think of the business owners who see their business not just primarily as a way to make a profit, but as a way to advance Jesus' kingdom and tell people about Christ. I think of neighbors who look for ways to bring the good news of the gospel to people on their block. That's what it looks like to be confident, to be prepared for Jesus' coming. Let's be a church family that's not just prepared, but excited, is expectant, is ready for the day for Jesus to come. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father God, uh, how rich Matthew 24 is that we could spend six weeks on it and then move into Matthew 25. Father, we pray that we would be not lost on some of the small details, not divided on some of the timing issues, but we would focus on the centrality of the gospel, the certainty of your son's return, our need for a personal relationship with Jesus 
as Savior and Lord. The empowerment of your spirit. You tell us that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, that we may be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Father, may our hearts truly be able to sing amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. May our priorities be in order. May we love the wonderful gifts that you have given us here on earth, but love you more. May we know that we are strangers and aliens. This is not our ultimate home. That this in no way parallels or equals what you have for your believers, your saints. Father, empower us by, our, by your spirit to turn from our besetting sins. Empower us by your spirit to make you, your son, your spirit, the priority. Father, allow us not to be lost in good things to the detriment of the best thing, to know you, to worship you, your son, your spirit. Empower us, we ask, in the name of Jesus, for your glory and our betterment. Amen.